Thank you, team. They let me pick that one. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Hey, they did a great job. Uh, see, that's one of those songs that for me uh, and, and my wife, it's one that we've listened to and it's kind of helped us through a lot of the difficulty of the past couple of years, that God sometimes leads us into places where it's difficult to trust, that He's leading, that He's guiding. Now, next week, Marlon starts a new series, and so, of course, he asked me to speak and didn't tell me what to speak on. Yeah, it, see, you think, well, wouldn't it be awful if someone told you preach on this? No, it'd be really nice, because <laughs> otherwise it's, what, what should I preach on? And so I thought, well, I'll just preach on what he's preaching on and beat him to it, right? No, no, I asked him what passages he's, he's doing, so I don't touch any of them. And I just go on a whole bunch of others instead. No, he's starting a new series on belief, and specifically the sort of belief that leads to salvation. But before we get there, it might be good for us to wrestle with an important question or two. And so what if I don't believe? Or what if I struggle to believe sometimes? Or maybe I believe, but I find it hard to trust in the midst of my circumstances. Well, in that case, you're not alone. In fact, we're going to be looking at one specific event in the New Testament, but from three different perspectives and seeing what we can learn from the earliest believers and in their difficulty to have this sort of faith that Jesus calls us to have. And so we're going to start with prayer and then we're going to dig right in. So just pray with me real quick, would you? God, we thank you for today. As we open your word, we thank you for it. As, as the one preaching, God, I ask that you help me to get out of the way. That you would convey to us what your word has to say. What you would have us learn and grow in. God, help us to be faithful to it. To learn from it. Would your spirit, which we know is already at work in those who believe, apply your word to our hearts. And transform us more and more into the image of Christ. And so we give you this time. We honor and glorify you in it. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. And this morning we're going to start in Mark. And we're going to be bouncing around the synoptic Gospels. Now, if you're unfamiliar with that term, that's okay. That's for Bible nerds. Uh, the synoptic Gospels are specifically talking about Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're called synoptic. You get that same word, synopsis, because they have a shared, similar story. They are each giving an account of Jesus' life his death, and his resurrection. They are also, they've got a lot in common. So when I said we're going to be looking at it from three perspectives, hopefully you're not thinking of those terrible movies, unless you like those sorts of movies, where they do the same scene over and over and over uh, from a different perspective. I was just talking to my wife about one of those. It came out in 2008. It was called Vantage Point, And it's terrible. Don't watch it. It's one of the worst wastes of two hours you'll ever give. Um, Unless you like it, in which case, you're wrong. No, no, uh, uh, no. sometimes it does us some good to look at it from different perspectives because we learn and we glean different things. But we're going to wrap this up in a lot less than two hours, unless you're not paying attention, in which case, I can go all day. No, wait, that's if you're paying attention. Never mind, just forget I said anything. Uh, no, we're going to look at it, we're going to start in Mark, we're going to jump around a little bit after that, but hopefully... It all comes together. So, starting in Mark chapter 9, verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, 
they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately, all the crowd, when they saw him, that's Jesus, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And they asked him, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and he grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it's often cast him into the fire and into water to to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can. All things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that the crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse. So that most of them said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So that's the first passage we're going to look at this morning. And let's set the scene. And so we read the beginning, and in verse 14 it says, and when they came to the disciples... Now, if we read just a little bit earlier in Mark, this is following the account of the transfiguration. Where specifically, uh, Peter, James, and John have just returned from the mountain where they see Jesus' transfiguration. That is, his uh, being physically almost transformed and glorified into what it's going to look like after he rises again from the dead. And not only that, but he has a conversation with two dead guys. Specifically, Moses... Uh, oh, hold on. I lost my place. Moses and the other guy. It's Elijah. I knew who it was. I just wanted to see if you <laughs> No, Moses and Elijah. And they're, they're amazed at what's going on. And they say, well, should we, should we fetch three tents? Not to mention two of these guys are dead, but they're there and Jesus is glorified. But they think, hey, let's be here a while. So they said, should we build three tents? It doesn't happen. But they see this incredible thing. And then they come down from the mountain and they come back to where the rest of the disciples are. And it's not this wonderful thing where they say, guys, you won't believe what we saw. Instead, they find the disciples in a crowd. And in this crowd, the disciples are arguing with the scribes, these experts in the law. Why? Because the disciples were trying to cast out a spirit and heal a boy, and they failed. And suddenly there's an audience that have gathered together to see these incredible things. And instead, the disciples have failed. They're arguing with the scribes who felt like they were going to fail, witnessed them fail, and now have a bunch of other witnesses who saw them fail. Now put yourself in the disciples' shoes. Here you're going to do something pretty amazing. You failed in front of everyone, and then Jesus walks up and asks, what's everyone fighting about? Yeah, uh, that's not a great situation to be in. Well, they're arguing. Why? Because a father brought his son to be healed by the disciples and they couldn't do it. 
Now, you need to understand that this isn't the first time that they've been in this situation. They've cast out spirits before. They've healed people before. They've performed incredible miracles before this. And yet on this one, they couldn't do it. Something went wrong. They had this expectation that God was going to act, and He didn't. And then there were witnesses. These scribes saw it. These Believers and skeptics together witnessed their failure. And it looked like this huge mess. And in the middle of this, Jesus comes up. And the father starts to describe the son's ailment, which at first sounds like something purely physical. That he's from a young age, he can't speak and he has seizures. And yet the father says this is a spirit that's inside him. And, and if it were only that one verse, we wouldn't know. But verse 22 tells us that there's something more. This spirit often casts the boy into fire or water, seeming to want to destroy him. And even then we might say, well, maybe the man has it wrong and he's, he's attributing something to a spirit that might be physical, except Mark describes it even further for us. That the boy is brought to Jesus The spirit sees him and reacts, immediately causing the boy to convulse, rolling around and foaming at the mouth. Something is happening here. But again, it's not something the disciples haven't been able to handle before. But something's different here. Something has changed here. Something has made it so the disciples are unable to do this. And so Jesus doesn't explain in the midst of this what's going on. But instead, that we have this account that this boy has been suffering from when he's very little, that it's concerning enough that the father brought the son to see these miracle healers in hopes that they could do something. Now, let's put ourselves in the shoes of the father. Imagine his discouragement when these miracle healers he's heard about, that as he joined this crowd, he had these expectations of what might happen and nothing. Just as no one else could help These healers can't help. And yet, even when they fail, their leader, this guy he's only heard about, shows up. And he thinks, maybe, just maybe this guy can do what the rest of them could not. Now, something needs to be said about the father's faith there as well. He believed, or at least he hoped, that something could be done for his son. He knew something was wrong. He knew it wasn't purely physical. He knew he needed help. And so he sought out spiritual leaders. Well, the healers couldn't help. The religious leaders couldn't help. Maybe these miracle healers who were wandering the countryside with this Jesus guy could help. And so he believed enough to bring them. But when they failed, he came to Jesus. He didn't give up hope yet. Maybe Jesus could do something. But we need to ask, who do we think? he thought Jesus was. Because our natural assumption might be, well, he's Jesus. He had to think he was Jesus. But there's a problem. We look at history from our perspective and say, well, there's no one, no one has ever been like Jesus. No one could be confused with Jesus. It's it's clear who he is. Well, sure, uh, because we lived 2,000 years after he died and rose from the dead. Uh, Come on, we've got a little bit more evidence than the people who just saw him walking around Maybe he saw him doing some things, but we also need to appreciate the historical context. Um, many teachers had come before. Jesus was not the first to come and to preach and to teach. In fact, he was 
one in a long line. You'd say, well, okay, Jesus was a teacher, but he could also tell people what God was going to do. Well, he wasn't the first prophet either. And there had been a lot of self-proclaimed prophets. There had been a lot of people who said they could forgive sins. There had been a lot of people who came and could do healings and perform miracles. And so in Israel, there was almost this expectation that these guys were going to come who could do things no one else could do. And maybe they're the Messiah, or maybe they just put on a good show. But hey... What else are we going to do? Work? Okay, you're not going to laugh at that. Okay, fine. No, they, they would gather together. It was almost like, maybe you don't want to think of it this way, but in America, for a good long while, uh, revivals were a popular thing. Tent meetings were a popular thing. People didn't just go because they believed. People went because, well, there's a big get-together in someone's field, and I've got nothing else going on, so I'll go. And weirdly enough, it worked. And a lot of people came to faith because they showed up at a thing, they heard the gospel, and they responded. Now, if we think that's unique to us, it's not. And in Israel, it often happened that someone would come and teach and a crowd would gather. Or someone would come and they would do healings and a crowd would gather. It happened a lot. And so when Jesus came, for some people, there was belief. And yet for others, it was just an eagerness that maybe I'll see something I've never seen before. Or maybe I'll see something incredible. Does it mean that he's the Son of God or the Messiah? Maybe. But maybe it's just a good time. And so, oh, that happens a lot when I talk for a while. I lose where I am. So, to many people, Jesus was nothing new. And so we have very little to go on to tell us if this man believed or if he was just taking a shot on some sort of miracle. But maybe, just maybe, we can learn something from what he said to Jesus, right? So, after Jesus asked the Father how long it had been happening, he explains his son's ailment, and then he says something that Jesus takes issue with. And he says something very human. He says, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and heal him. Or have compassion on us and help us. Right? Is there anything wrong with that response? Oh, hold on, we'll get to that. Don't answer for me. No, there is. There is something wrong. Now, he answers from a very human place. How many of us, when we go to the Lord in prayer and say, God, if you can do something, please do it. If you didn't think he could do something, you wouldn't be asking him in the first place, right? Or at least hoping, even beyond belief, that maybe God can do something. And so this man says, if you can do anything... Have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus responds, if I can, (laughs) if I can help you, of course Jesus can do something. And yet he's pointing out this man is not coming in faith that God will do something. He's coming in the hope that God might do something. And even if not God, that this, this traveling magician, if that's who he sees Jesus to be, might be able to do something. He's hopeful in an outcome. Not necessarily in the character of God. And so Jesus responds and says, if I can, all things are possible for one who believes. And so the wording of the Father, if we didn't have an answer before, we have one now. He says, I believe. Help my unbelief. Which at first sounds really good. Right? Except what was this Father asking for help to believe in? Was he asking that he be able to understand who Jesus is? 
No, he didn't have belief that Jesus could do this. And he thinks, if I can convince this man that I believe enough, that he'll do something for me. And yet, is Jesus even talking about him? Now, we know Jesus believes because Jesus knows exactly who he is. He has complete faith in the Father because he knows the Father. And so he says, anything is possible for one who believes. Is he talking about this man? That if you believe, then miracles will happen. Which, by the way, is something fairly commonly said today. Um, If you believe enough, then it'll happen. Sorry, we'll get to that. No, Jesus says that anything is possible, or all things are possible for one who believes. And so the man says, I believe, help my unbelief. He acknowledges he doesn't believe, he wants to believe, he's claiming belief, but belief in what? In who Jesus is? Or what Jesus could maybe do for him? Because believe it or not, there is a difference. Now, unlike other healings that Jesus performed, there was the sinful woman in Luke chapter 7. There was the bleeding woman in Luke chapter 8. In both, Jesus acknowledges their faith. And in one, he says specifically, your faith has made you well. Or because of your faith, you are made well. He does not say that to this man. In fact, it gives no reason why he heals this boy. He doesn't say it's because of the father's faith. It doesn't say it's because of the son's faith. It's not because of anyone else's faith. No one's faith is credited here. There is a lack of faith that we see, not an abundance. And so instead, because a crowd came running together, that's the reason we see. A crowd comes running together and Jesus heals the boy. No mention of the father's faith. No mention of the reason why the boy should be healed. And we might say, but wait, didn't the father respond in faith? Well, we talked about that. Immediately he cried out, I believe, help my unbelief. And he responds in a way that makes sense. If healing requires belief, then I will believe. I'll do whatever it takes to get the thing that I'm after. If that's healing, I'll believe to get healing. If it's salvation, I'll believe to get salvation. If it's to get my son, I'll do whatever it takes. I'll say whatever it takes. Whether that was belief in Jesus' power, it was not belief in who Jesus was. Uh, In fact, the crowd didn't believe because when Jesus cast out the spirit, it convulsed terribly. And he was still as a corpse and they said, well, he's dead. So the crowd gathered together. They wanted to see this miracle happen. Instead, they saw a boy die. Or so they thought. So they said. Did they trust that Jesus was doing something good? No. It was still a show. Maybe not the show they were after. But they were there to see something. And so still the crowd thought he was dead. And this crowd gathered to see cheap tricks and wonders. Jesus had failed. They didn't gather because they believed. They gathered for a show. And the illusion was dead. Now what did Jesus mean when he responded? The the father took Jesus' word to mean that if he believed, then God would act. But Jesus healed the boy in spite of the father's lack of belief. Not because He professed belief, not because he claimed it or said, help me in it. And maybe, though, maybe, though, we're only looking at it from one perspective and we're not seeing the whole picture. Maybe it wasn't even the father's fault. Maybe it was because the disciples didn't believe. So for that, we're going to turn to Matthew chapter 17. And while you're doing that, I'm going to sip my tea. So you've got to turn the pages. I've got it all printed out right here. Oh. 
sorry, Matthew chapter 17. When they came to the crowd, that is, again, remember, some of the disciples had gone, saw the transfiguration, and returned. When they came to the crowd, a man came up to him, that is Jesus, and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and into the water, and I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? Now that much we know. We read that much in Mark. There were a few details there, but this is where the juicy bit comes in. They asked, why couldn't we cast out this spirit? And he said to them, because of your little faith. And so not only was there an issue with the father's faith, there was an issue with the disciples' faith. Uh Uh-oh. So a man who showed up in a crowd with the hopes that maybe Jesus was who he claimed to be, didn't have faith. The people who traveled with Jesus, who were empowered by Jesus, who did miracles alongside Jesus, also lacked faith. We're going to get into that a little bit more. Now, Matthew sums all that up in five verses and where Mark only records Jesus saying that this deliverance uh, sort of deliverance required prayer. In Matthew's account, he pins the blame of the failed healing on the disciples in their lack of faith. He says, because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. Now, we heard that same idea in Mark as well as Matthew. In Mark, it's all things are possible for the one who believes. In Matthew, if you have faith, nothing will be uh, impossible for you. That is, if you have even the teensiest amount of faith. But are we sure that the disciples really lacked faith? Well, let's look at Luke 17, and I'll read it here. Luke 17, verses 5 and 6. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. So if we need to have evidence that they lacked faith, well, they were asking for it to be increased. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. And so Jesus well, let's, let's run through our list of evidence. Uh, their lack of faith was proven in front of a crowd. Their lack of faith was described by Jesus. And their lack of faith is evident because they said as much. The disciples lacked faith. Now, we do need to take a, uh, a brief aside here because in one of these passages, you'll notice that it talks about the disciples. In Luke 17, it mentions the apostles. You might say, well, Pastor Lawrence, you're talking about two different groups of people. And it's not a very good sermon if you make a point talking about two different groups of people as if they're the same group of people. Yeah, I prepared. I'm ready for this. We'll get to this. Now, they're gathered together, and I'm going to tell you that the disciples and the apostles are gathered together, and Jesus is teaching them. The disciples being a specific group of twelve that traveled with Jesus, and the apostles here being the seventy-two that had been sent out uh, by Jesus into the cities. These seventy-two had been proclaiming that Jesus was coming, and they were performing miracles. 
In some instances, they've been performing miracles in Jesus' name, just as the disciples had been doing. How do we know that? Well, we see in Luke chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, when he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. That was the disciples. Uh, Luke 10, verses 17 and 20, the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So a few quick notes. These men had been doing miraculous things, and even demons were subject to them. But there were a few qualifiers to that. That the demons were subject to them in Jesus' name. Their authority was given to them by Jesus. Their rejoicing should not be in that the spirits were subject to them, but rather that their names were written in heaven. In other words, that they believe. It was actually very important that they believe. If we look at Acts chapter 19, it says that then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? Sorry, I really like that line. Uh. And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Without faith, these men had zero authority over the spirits. Why? Because they had no faith in the one who actually had authority over the spirits, because that authority, authority had not been giving the, given to them by Jesus. Faith in some abstract power was not enough. Calling on a name that they had heard was powerful was not enough. It is not some ritual or magic word. It is faith in Jesus Christ and belonging to Him that made the difference. And so the disciples, when they came together and said, increase our faith. This is likely after this event when they said something's happening and our faith is lacking. So what can we do? They say, increase our faith. So we know that they have faith, but their faith is lacking. Even they recognize it. And we know this, again, because Jesus tells them so and because they ask for it. And so as we already discussed, in Matthew, the group is referred to generically as the disciples. In Luke, we see the apostles specifically mentioned, but the previous passage lets us know that the disciples were also there. And so, as we see in Mark, not all of the disciples were together, as some were with Jesus on the mountain. And hopefully, that clears up the confusion. This was one group that Jesus was addressing, and they all lacked faith. They knew it, Jesus knew it, and now the entire region knew it. But this was different than the man with the sick son. Now, the father did not believe in who Jesus was. He only hoped that believing would make the magic happen. The disciples and the apostles believed in who Jesus was, but still lacked faith. Now, how did this work? Think about this. The disciples 
knew who Jesus was. Peter definitely knew who Jesus was. Because just before this, in Luke chapter 9, it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. That is, as Jesus is praying, the disciples were with Jesus. And Jesus asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? The crowds were gathering to see what Jesus was doing. And so Jesus is curious from, from those who are going out and gathering the crowds and hearing from the crowds and working in the crowds. Who do the crowds say that I am? And they respond, John the Baptist. Uh, others say Elijah. Another, uh, one of the prophets of old has risen. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? They may not know who I am, but you who have traveled with me, do you know who I am? And Peter responds, the Christ of God. And so Peter's got no excuse. After this, he sees the transfiguration. Now, granted, Peter was not one of those that failed in this uh, deliverance ministry here. That, that should be said. Peter showed up and probably was thinking, oh no, I'm going to tell them who Jesus is, but obviously they don't know who Jesus is. I want to tell them the things that I've seen, but now there's a mess. And so, <laughs> you have this difficulty that the disciples had seen Jesus glorified, talking with Moses and Elijah, how could they possibly, how could any of them, after traveling with Jesus and being with Jesus and seeing the things that Jesus did, doubt? Well, D.A. Carson explains it this way, that they had long been successful in this work of casting out demons. And now they were surprised by their failure. But their faith was shoddy. They are treating the authority given to them like a gift of magic, a bestowed power that works ex opera operato, that is, the work, not from the work performed, a correct rite or ritual. In Mark, Jesus tells them this case requires prayer, not a form of or approved rite, but an entire life bathed in prayer and its concomitant faith. In Matthew, Jesus tells his disciples that what they need is not giant faith, tiny faith will do, but true faith. Faith that out of a deep personal trust expects God to work. And so the father claimed belief, but in the wrong thing for the wrong reason. He hoped his belief would make the magic work. The disciples had recognized belief in Jesus. Jesus knew it was there. But also for the wrong reason. That they believed in Jesus, but for His power more than anything else. They weren't all convinced of who Jesus was. But they'd seen His power work. And they were able to do things because of Him. But Jesus' powers and His miracles weren't the point. They were meant to draw people to God. And it didn't. At least some responded, Many couldn't. Many absolutely didn't. They glorified the men who performed these miracles, but they didn't believe in the one who sent them. Now, as we're going to see in just a moment, it wasn't just the Father who was at fault. It wasn't just the disciples who were at fault. There's a whole group that are involved. And so we're going to look at one more passage this morning. That's from Luke chapter 9. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, the spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. 
And the way Jesus answers is a phrase that we have not dealt with this morning, but we need to. Because it's in not one, not two, but all three of the Gospels. In Mark, he answers them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? In Matthew, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? In Luke, Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and to bear with you? Now, not only did the Father lack faith, not only did the disciples lack faith, the entire generation lacked faith. Let that sink in for a moment. It's not just a few people where this is at fault. This is the people of God. The entire generation that is now seeing Christ in the flesh, walking among them, performing miracles, restoring sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, life to the dead. And yet they're coming around like he's some sort of magician, some sort of illusionist who can do these tricks that people haven't seen before or have seen, but maybe he does them a little bit better. And when he leaves, they just go on with their lives. This is the people of God who have been trained up in God's word, trained up to know the promises of God, trained up to know that God's promise was to send a savior and a Messiah. And when he comes... They mistake him for a magician, and when he does one trick too many on a day he shouldn't, they kill him. Because, hey, there's going to be more magicians, right? What's losing this guy who got a few people riled up? No, this is what we see in Luke chapter 11. When he was casting out a demon that was mute... Uh, When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. But some of them said he cast out a demon by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. While others to test him kept seeking from from him a sign from heaven. He cast out demons and they say, yeah, but that's because you work with demons. He starts doing incredible things and they say, yeah, but I don't believe. Give us more signs. Do more incredible things. If you do more amazing things, then we'll believe. This was good. You can do better. And so Jesus responds. He says, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And so he says pretty deftly, You think that by demons, I'm casting out demons. Does that make any logical sense? No. If I'm working with him, would I come and be stronger than him? If I'm unmantling, dismantling his kingdom in front of you, then do you believe that it's still his kingdom or has another kingdom come? And if you can't figure this out, then what are we doing? In fact, he keeps going. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest and finding none. It says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. Are these people that Jesus is cleansing 
showing up as being even worse after the fact? Or are they truly healed? And if they're healed, shouldn't that say something about who Jesus is? Now, as he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment uh, with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. They missed the point. And they missed it completely. When Jesus cast out demons, they accused him of being in league with Satan. When he performed miracles, they demanded more signs. When he appeared powerful, they said his mother should be proud of him. (laughs) Right? No sign was good enough. No miracle was satisfying enough. No preaching or teaching was convincing enough. And these were the people of God who were to respond when God moves, when God leads, when God teaches. But it's just like we see in Luke chapter 16. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day, and at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham from far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, To send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And so God's people had the word of God, and yet they didn't believe it. They knew who God was, and yet they didn't trust it. And so when these miracles happened, did they suddenly open their eyes and say, this is the Messiah, the one we've been hoping for, the one we've been trusting in? No, they couldn't. Because if they couldn't accept the Word of God, why would they see the fulfillment of the Word of God? The father with the sick son put his faith in the wrong things. The disciples put their faith in the wrong things. The crowds and the entire generation put their faith in the wrong things. But still, something wonderful happened in that crowd. 
While he was coming, the demon threw the boy to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. Here's the part. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. And so even though this crowd knew the word of God but didn't recognize him, when Jesus demonstrated the power of God, they responded in faith. They lacked it. They didn't have it. God didn't act because of their great demonstration of faith, but rather in spite of their lack of faith, in order that they might respond in faith. Now, there's something important we need to notice. The boy, like I said, was healed in spite of the father's lack of faith. The boy was delivered in spite of the disciples' lack of faith. God was glorified in spite of that generation's lack of faith. Now, I have heard too many times, as a pastor, as a Christian, as someone going through hard times, that God didn't answer the prayers of His people because they didn't have enough faith. Where did we ever hear that? Where did we get that blasphemous idea that if we can have enough faith, that God will do the things we demand of Him? That we can force God's hand, that we can manipulate Him into doing our bidding because we believe it strongly enough. Or that the things we desire, we can manifest into being because we think those things strongly enough. Or believe those things strongly enough. Can we will God into action? Can we force God to do the things that we demand of Him? Or maybe the stronger question, do we desire Christ for who He is? Or simply because of what we think He might do for us? Are we like Simon the Magician in Acts chapter 8, where we simply want something from Jesus? Do we want Him to do something for us, to give us this power, or this ability, or this thing? And the reality is faith. Belief is not some magic power, but there is power in it. Faith does not manipulate God into loving us, though He does love those who have faith. And faith does not give us the right to demand things of God, though He invites us to come to Him with requests and to truly believe that He'll answer us. If that is confusing to you, let me make it abundantly clear. Faith is not just believing that God is God. Scripture tells us that the demons believe that God is God and they do not have faith. Faith is more than just believing that Jesus is the Son of God and the chosen Savior because the demons also understand that and they fear Him for it. Faith is trusting in who Christ is and that He is our only hope in salvation. We can trust in all that He says. We can rest in the assurance that His death and resurrection has satisfied the wrath of God and overcome the penalty of sin in those who believe. We can trust Him to lead and guide our lives. And we can face the fear of death, knowing that He has overcome the grave and bids us to follow Him into eternal life. Faith is not about getting something for ourselves. It is about us giving Him all of ourselves. Faith is not a power that we wield. It is the power of salvation for those whose hope is in the One who is over all of creation. Faith does not demand that God prove Himself to us. It allows us to see all that He has done and to respond in deeper faith. We need God to help us to shift our eyes from ourselves and onto Him. 
And when our hope is on Him, when our desire is for Him, and our joy is to please Him, only then can we say with the father of the afflicted boy, help my unbelief. Only then can we say with the apostles, increase our faith. And we can respond like the crowd and be astonished at the majesty of God. I want to close this morning with a quote from C.S. Lewis. In his book, Mere Christianity, in these series of talks where he explained the faith, he said this. He said, to have faith in Christ means, of course, trying to do all that he says. There would be no sense in saying you trusted a person if you would not take his advice. Thus, if you have really handed yourself over to him, it must follow that you are trying to obey him. But trying in a new way, a less worried way. Not doing these things in order to be saved, but because He has begun to save you already. Not hoping to get to heaven as a reward for your actions, but inevitably wanting to act in a certain way because a first faint gleam of heaven is already inside you. We have to understand that faith isn't some mystical thing that we can get and use and have it completely apart from Christ. It's only faith in Christ. Trusting in Christ, that that faith has any worth at all. If you've got more questions about that, that's great, because Marlon is going to be leading us for the next several weeks through what it means to believe, and different types of belief that lead us to salvation. If you've got questions about that, if you are uh, eager to know more about that, then I encourage you to come back next week. Uh, if you want to talk more about that today, uh, I guarantee you look to the person next to you and say, hey, let's talk about faith. If they don't stay, someone else will. But that being said, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for today. And together we ask that if any of us are, are struggling to trust that you are who you say you are, then God, help us to take a step back and to look to your word. Because we can talk all day about the incredible things that you've done, but if we don't want to go to your word, how will we recognize those things as being from you? And God, maybe we believe, but we struggle to trust you uh, that you're going to lead us in the ne this next stage of life or in the midst of these difficult things. And that's okay. Help us with the apostles and the disciples to say, increase our faith. Because the reality is that we can't have faith without you. And we can't grow deeper in our faith without you. Because without you, we have no faith. But God, we also live in the midst of a faithless generation. In a twisted generation. Where it is not easy or natural for us to trust. And so God, despite the world we live in, would you help us to look to your word to trust in what it says. And Lord, as we trust you through these difficult things that happen in our lives, would you deepen our faith? Just like a relationship only grows through hardship, God, would you help us to embrace the difficult things in this life as they lead us to trust you more and more? But God, in the midst of this next series, in the midst of our lives, would you help us to be honest with ourselves and honest with you? If we believe... Wonderful. If we struggle, God, help us. Work in us. Transform us. And help us to trust all the more. We pray in Jesus' name.
Amen.